Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Turn over to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, we continue our study of the timeless truths of Revelation. You remember when Paul was in Athens and he was speaking at the Areopagus, conversing with the philosophers and they wanted to know more about this new thing he was proclaiming. And as he began to tell them about God, he centered on one main truth. You know what that was? The judgment. It says in Acts 17.30, Having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man He has appointed. Again, when Paul was writing to the church at Rome and he was dealing with the necessity of having the righteousness of God that comes through faith. This righteousness is necessary because there is a day of judgment coming. He said in Romans 2, 5, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In Revelation 14, John sees an angel with an eternal gospel to preach. In verses 6 and 7, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and the springs of waters. That angel went out throughout the world to proclaim the gospel because there is a day of judgment coming. If there were no day of judgment, we would have no need for missionaries. If there were no day of judgment coming, there would be no need for Jesus to have come and die. If there was no judgment day coming, there would be no gospel. But the truth is, there is a day of judgment coming. And this day of judgment is depicted for us in verses 14 through 19. And it's depicted as two harvest. Now these are looking forward, as we know. Uh, to the day that's described in chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. And we're going to look at these two harvests, these two judgments today. First, the righteous into salvation, verses 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, crying out with a loud voice, 
to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. First, let's look at the one doing the harvesting. He's described as one sitting on a cloud. And what does that cloud remind you and I of? All right, what did we see of this cloud before? The Shekinah cloud of glory in the Old Testament. We also saw it in our study of Revelation. You remember that? We saw it over in chapter 10 when we saw Christ there and He was, again, clothed with a cloud. Remember that? The return of Christ is associated with clouds. Revelation chapter 1 in verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. It's also reminiscent of the bright cloud that was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. And not too many people remember or realize that on the Mount of Transfiguration, that is, where Jesus' glory shone through so mightily, that it was accompanied by a bright cloud. How many of you remembered that? Well, look over in Matthew chapter 17. In verse 5, here we have a mighty display of the inward glory of the Lord Jesus as He shone brighter than the noonday sun. His garments were whiter than any launderer could make them, the Scripture says. And we see there in verse 5, while He was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So again, that cloud associated with God. And here I think that tells us clearly that this one seated on the white cloud is none other than the Lord Jesus. Also, notice it says, One on the cloud was like a son of man. Now what does that remind you of? The Son of Man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over in the book of Daniel. And it said there, one like the Son of God's. But Daniel does mention the Son of Man over in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel's vision of the coming kingdom of Christ. He says... There in verse 13, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, clouds again, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, speaking of the kingdom of Christ when He comes back. But He is called the Son of Man. Now, Jesus' favorite title for Himself was Son of Man. He used that title for Himself more than anybody else did. It's used more on the lips of Jesus than any other place in Scripture. But here John is using it to let us clearly know, again, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. Notice also, back in Revelation 14, it says, having a golden crown on his head. Again, symbolic of triumphant. There are two words for crown in the Greek. Diadema and Stephanus. All right? Diadema is a royal crown. Stephanus is a victor's crown. We get our name Stephen from that. Here we have the triumphant crown. As Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, it speaks of him having a crown on his head. And then what else do we see? What's he holding in his hand? A sharp sickle. Now, sickles were associated in those days as well as, as well as in certain parts of the world today with harvesting, right? With cutting the grain or whatever you might be harvesting or the grapes. So we see the one harvesting is Jesus. Next, look at the appointed time, verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The angel comes out from the temple, symbolic of coming out from the presence of God. He's not giving a command to Jesus. Rather, he is a messenger from God the Father. And the message is clear. The time is fulfilled. The hour for the harvest of the righteous has come. Again, we see this truth that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, and that is that God is in control. He is sovereignly on His throne, working out history to His appointed schedule. The day of Jesus' return is set. The day for the judgment is set. And when the time is right, according to God's schedule, it will happen. Not one second before, not one second after. God's timing is rarely our timing, but His timing is always perfect. He's never early, He's never late. Now, God God not only has an appointed timetable for Jesus' return, for the judgment day, but for everything, for the days of our life. They're numbered in his book, the psalmist says, even before there's one of them. When you'll get married, if that's his will. Now, probably very few of us got married when we had originally thought we probably would. God had a different, same thing about having kids. God had a different timetable, right? But his timetable is always best. And God's not informed us about his timetable, and that's for obvious reasons. 
So what we need to do is to move out seeking His will, trusting Him, realizing that He's working the events out according to His schedule. And we cannot rush them. But we need to learn patience. It is the harvest, the judgment of Christians. Verse 16. When then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, Although Revelation never says his harvest is that of Christians, I think the context of our passage makes that clear. First, we saw that the judgment is spoken of in verses 6 and 7. All right? And next, we see a third angel in verse 9 who gives the end of the unrighteous and the end of Christians. Verse 9, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Right? Judgment of the wicked. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. And those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of the name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So here we have in this chapter, this, this presentation in different ways of the judgment. Here the judgment of the unrighteous, the judgment of the righteous. And I think what we see in verses 14 and through 20 is the same thing. We have the judgment of the unrighteous, the judgment of the righteous. And here we have, first of all, the judgment of the righteous mentioned. Other passages in the Bible speak of the ingathering of Christians into God's kingdom as harvesting them. Over in John's Gospel, chapter 4, in verse 35, Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says. John four thirty-five. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you will enter into their labor. So the Bible speaks of the ingathering of Christians into God's kingdom as harvesting them. Notice who's doing the harvesting in this passage in Revelation. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one doing the harvest. This is John's way of assuring us that every Christian will be harvested. 
Not one Christian will be left behind. Not one Christian will be missed. Everyone who's placed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior will be gathered by our Lord Jesus. Now, this is a great picture of eternal security. If it were left up to some angel, hmm, might not be real secure, but it's the Lord Jesus who's doing the harvesting. And what did Jesus say? He knows His own. And He says over in John, All the Father has given to me, what? I might bring some of them in. Huh. What did He say? I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus clearly taught that he would never lose not one who were his chosen. And in John 10, he talks about having his lambs within his hands and no one can snatch them out of his hands. So don't you worry. When the day of judgment comes, you're safe if you are born again into the kingdom of God by his gracious blood. That's the harvest of the righteous now the second harvest is the harvest of the wicked into condemnation verse 17 and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle so this is not jesus doing this harvest is it nope it's an angel Then another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And notice, we have the theology of the judgment given in verse 18. It says, His angel comes not from the temple, as we saw the angel that told Jesus it was time, symbolizing God's love. But this angel comes from the altar. You remember there were two altars in the tabernacle. And it was a picture of the tabernacle in heaven. Can you tell me one of those altars? The altar of, it was in the holy place. They put something on it. Incense. Altar of incense. It was in the holy place, remember? The first compartment and the second was the Holy of Holies. That was a golden altar. But there was another altar outside the holy place, which was a brazen altar. You remember what it was used for? Sacrifices. It was a place of judgment. And God was saying before you could enter into His holy presence, first there must be a Judgment on sin. That must be a payment of sin. It was only as the animals were killed and burnt on the altar, then the high priest could go into the holy place and the holy of holies. Now we saw, you remember, in chapter 8 of Revelation, when we saw the tribulation, and we saw at that point that an angel went and he got a censer full of coals from this altar of judgment, and he threw it on the earth. And that was the beginning of the great tribulation as God poured out His wrath. All right? So what you see is the theology of the tribulation is the wrath of God, which is His rejected love. Here we see 
The theology of judgment, again, is the same thing. It is to reject the love of God is to experience His wrath. It's that simple. You either receive His love or you receive His wrath. And so we're being told here, the first angel came from the temple, representing God and His love. This angel that comes to announce it's time for the harvest comes from the altar of brazen altar, the altar of judgment, where the animals are sacrificed, showing that the love of God has been rejected, therefore you must experience His holy wrath. You see, the greatness of God's love is only matched by the greatness of His wrath. And we don't like to talk about God's wrath. Oh, don't talk about that, preacher. Talk about God's love. Well, He can't be a God who loves righteousness and not be a God that hates sin. He can't be. I mean, think about it. Every bit as much as He loves righteousness and holiness, He has got to hate unrighteousness and unholiness. It, it can't be any other way. And so a God of love has got to be a God of wrath. Because if He loves what's good, He's got to hate what's bad. You can't love what's good and evil at the same time. But God's wrath is not like our wrath. And that's where we get tripped up, I think, when we try to humanize God's wrath because we think of it in terms of our anger, which is nothing like God's anger. God's wrath is His holy hatred for sin. It's God's violent reaction to anything or anyone who is unrighteous, unholy, or sinful. It is a violent reaction within the person of God. Why? Because it is so contrary to His nature. I use something to help us understand that when I speak of cannibalism. Now, to you and I, the thought of eating another human being's flesh, is repulsive. We have a reaction because it's contrary to our nature. Now multiply that infinitely, and you can get a sense of God's violent reaction to sin because it is totally against His holy nature. God's wrath is never capricious, never self-indulgent, never irrational or impulsive, as our human anger often is. I'm angry. Well, what's your anger about? I don't know. I'm just mad. Many times ours is irrational, mainly emotional or impulsive. God's wrath is always judicial, not revengeful, judicial. It's the wrath of a judge administering justice. God's wrath is never cruel. It is never Immoral. Those who experience it are only receiving what they deserve. They are the guilty and they're only getting justice. No more. God's justice and His righteousness demand His wrath. He would not be morally perfect if He did not hate sin. How could a God delight in what is good and holy and pure 
and not loathe what is unholy and vile and impure. And God's wrath is something people choose for themselves. John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Anyone who desires to flee from the wrath of God and come under the protection of the blood of Christ is welcome to do so. No one will be turned away who desires through the protection of Christ's death and resurrection to be saved from the wrath of God. Nobody will be turned away. Thirdly, it is the winepress of God's wrath. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Now the picture of the harvest of the righteous was that of a grain harvest. Cutting the wheat, bundling it up, taking it into the barn, right? But the picture of the harvest of the wicked is that of grapes being thrown into a wine press. Now, wine press is a much better picture of God's holy hatred on the Christ rejecting than many things you could put for that picture. When I was over in Capernaum, I remember seeing a wine press, which is a hollowed place out in a rock, kind of an indented place. And they would place the grapes there, and then people would what? Stomp them. Crush them. And that's a picture, isn't it, of God's fury being poured out on Christ rejecting as He crushes them under His holy wrath. And rather than grape juice coming out of that vat, what comes out? Blood. Blood. Their blood has been shed. The question I must ask, which harvest will be yours? Which harvest? The harvest of the righteous or the harvest of the unrighteous? There's only one way to be saved from God's holy wrath. Paul says, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Because God is righteous and God is just, your sins... And my sins have to be punished. God cannot turn his head and wink and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. The scripture says he punishes the guilty. When he revealed himself to Moses, he mentioned he surely punishes the guilty. 
and your sins and my sins will be punished. And the only question is, are you going to be punished for them? Or has Christ been punished for your sins? They will be punished. God's righteousness demands it. And all of those who reject Christ's payment for our sins, then they will have to pay for their own sin. The only way for His punishment to be for your sin is for you, through faith, to come unto Him and trust Him as your Lord and surrender to Him as your Savior. When you do that, it's proof positive that He has paid the price for your sins. He has received the punishment that you deserve. But that's the only way. That's the only way. That concludes our study for tonight. We will be having only two more lessons in the truths of Revelation. That will bring us to the last Wednesday night in August.